Welcome to Teaching American History's Saturday webinar for 17 August 2019. Today, Dr. Chris Burkett and Drs. Sarah Morgan Smith and Jason Stevens will be discussing the colonial American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards. This is the first in our American Minds series of Saturday webinars for the 2019-2020 school year in which we will look at a diverse selection of Americans who had an impact on our ideas, our letters, our politics, and our public life. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the first Saturday webinar in our new series for this year. Uh, another teachingamericanhistory.org Saturday webinar. These webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach political science and history uh, at Ashland University, and I'm co-director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergraduates at Ashland University. So the theme of our webinar series this year is American Minds, and let me first of all give a quick shout out to Jeremy Gipton uh, for pulling these webinars together and uh, really coming up with some great topics um, for us to discuss uh, uh, in these webinars. So uh, Jeremy came up with the idea of American Minds this year, and I think it's a great, uh, interesting, should be very interesting topic for us to discuss. So if you're joining us for the first time, the point of these webinars is to um, pull together some thoughtful scholars and have a conversation about uh, this year certain what we're calling American minds. And uh, to say something about this idea of American minds uh, quickly, and I'm sure this will come out in our, our actual conversation. Uh, I think what we kind of had in mind was uh, looking at 10 individuals who both had an influence on um, what what uh, the phrase American mind, by the way, is a, is a phrase Thomas Jefferson used in a letter uh, describing uh, what he thought the purpose of the Declaration of Independence was. But, but we're talking about 10 interesting individuals who both reflect something of an American way of thinking and have had an influence on uh, how Americans think and act and, uh, and how we sort of move through the world. So, um, we encourage all of you joining us today to participate in our conversation by submitting questions in the chat box feature. And as always, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. So please feel free to submit some questions. And I'm sure our thoughtful scholars today um, can say something about those. In the next week, you'll receive a link, uh, sorry, an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio of today's program. And as always, we tend to draw our uh, or start our conversations, found our conversations on original documents and texts. And a lot of those are available in our uh, newly revamped uh, website available through TAH.org, uh, which includes many documents, many primary sources, which is just a fantastic collection. So today, the mind that we're discussing is Jonathan Edwards, and I'm happy to welcome uh, Sarah Morgan Smith of the Ashbrook Center and Jason Stevens, uh, a colleague of mine here at, at Ashland University as well. Thanks both of you for joining us this morning. So um, this is the first webinar. So um, how do we in this theme? So how do we how do we begin this? Okay, I'll just start with a a broad question uh, to throw out there, and I 
welcome you to take this in any direction you like. Um, in what sense is uh, is in what sense is um, Jonathan Edwards an American mind? Mm. That's a big, broad question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Intentionally broad, so that you can do anything you want with this. So, Sarah, yeah, this is your this is right in your wheelhouse. I know you've done a lot of research and writing on this era. Um, uh, you you want to tackle this first? Do you have any thoughts on that? In what sense is Jonathan Edwards a reflection of the American mind? Sure. Um, so first of all, thanks for starting this series off with an 18th century person who's not from the revolution. Uh, we're you know always happy to acknowledge that there was an America before the actual war that made America. Um, so this is, I think, a good opportunity to think about uh, what was happening in the, the, you know, the colonies that would then become the United States um, that made them ready to have an American Revolution, right, mentally? Um, what, what made them different from their Anglo uh, origins? You know, why, uh, why they could identify themselves as American and not just British, right? Um, and I think that Edwards is a good example of that because he really has um, a very individualized vision of what it means to be a religious believer um, and that individualized um, or individualistic mentality, I think, is essential to what you know, becomes the American emphasis on, on rights um, and liberty. So I would say at a baseline, you know, he's helping to create that sense of um, self-government as, okay, I have this ability to make decisions about the most important things, right, religious things, um, and then that carries out into other areas. Yeah, that's a great start. But so we, we know Edwards as a religious thinker, right, that's primarily, and I'll, I'll confess, by the way, I know a little bit about Edwards. I've read some the, the things that we've you know asked people to read for today but i don't know much about him and i in my you know when we tend to think of him we think of him in a religious context first and foremost which is certainly important but the way you're describing his something about the way he his religious thought and the way he thinks and speaks about these things seems to have an influence on changing how people living in america or the colonies that will become states in america how those how that the way they think changes from, as you said, their Anglo origins. That's I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, because again, we're taking the theme, the, I, the, the term American minds comes from this letter from Thomas Jefferson, where he says, look, there's this certain way of thinking that Americans had in 1776, but certainly it didn't happen overnight, right? So, so this is interesting. So would you say, Sarah, that you, you see in Edwards some a significant turn and then maybe in what ways do you see Edwards influencing how Americans think in ways that were different from their from their their past as as Englishmen primarily. Sure, um, and I want to make sure that Jason gets a chance to say, absolutely. Um, you know, if he thinks this is is maybe a different uh, approach to the idea of an American mind, but I will say just a little bit. Um, I really think for Edwards, it's the idea. The emphasis shifts from being a part of a congregation of like-minded individuals who understand 
uh, you know, their religious tradition in a similar way um, and who gather together, you know, and have this shared worship experience and sort of test the truth of their religious beliefs against that shared communal experience and understanding. Um, and then because of the revivals that he oversees uh, in the 1730s that kind of blossom into the Great Awakening in the 1740s. Um, and obviously Edwards is you know, not the only person uh, involved, but he writes quite a lot about it and, and helps to publicize it and sort of create a, a di um, not a dialogue, a, a set of, of shared language for describing the experiences and everything. Um, and so that's why I'm giving him credit for this. Uh, that that great awakening mentality shifts from the centrality of the the corporate worship experience to the individualized experience of the believer and people you know leaving churches um, because they don't like the preaching that they're hearing and um, and all of that kind of gives you experience of well if I can leave a church then I can leave you know a political association and um, I mean it's an extrapolation and there are things that have to happen in between but that's that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, if I can jump in on that, I mean, I think that I think that's exactly right. Um, um, and Chris, your question about um, Jonathan Edwards and the extent to which, right, he right he is an American or represents what we're calling here or what Jefferson called the American mind. Uh, what a great question! I wish I had had thought about that before we before we started the webinar, so I could could maybe think about it a little more. But just listening to both of you uh, dialogue on that point. Um, Edwards has a lot to say about the nature of, of human choice. He has a lot to say about the nature of human freedom, especially uh, as it relates to the sovereignty of God. Uh, so, you know, Edwards, one of his most uh, you know, famous works is, um, is a treatise on the freedom of the will. Uh, the title is actually a lot longer than that. It's about like three sentences long, but I mean, essentially it, it, it's summed up on, right, Edwards on the, the, the free will. Um, and for Edwards, I mean, Freedom of the will has to do with, um, with the capacity of the human mind to, to choose something, right? An act of the will is the same as, uh, as an act of, of choosing or of choice. Um, and this reminds us of, right, the opening of, of Federalist One uh, and what Hamilton says there about the capacity of mankind to determine um, the capacity of mankind to, to form good government based upon reflection and choice versus accident and force. Um, for Edwards, the capacity of mankind for reflection and choice, right, to decide the important questions for themselves, that's part of human nature that is a product of, um, of the, the human creation that, uh, that God has uh, endowed right, the world with. This is something that um, Lincoln is intimately concerned about. I, uh, I learned in preparing for this webinar that Lincoln was a, a, a huge fan of, of Jonathan Edwards on the freedom of the will. And wow. if you, uh, I mean, maybe later we could, we could talk about, you know, talk about that more. If you want to understand what Edwards thoughts on the freedom of the will are, um, a good place to start other than the Edwards writings is Lincoln's writings, especially the second inaugural. Lincoln and Edwards think a lot alike on sort of the relationship between the human and the divine um, based on that speech. I mean, Lincoln at the end of his life says, you know, I want to visit Jerusalem and I want to study Jonathan Edwards. No kidding. That's interesting. No huh. That's interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. I had no idea. So this is, uh, again, interesting um, 
uh, line of thought that you're both putting out there. I wonder how far we can push this. Uh, so uh, just thinking out loud here, what I'm hearing is that on the one hand, Edwards, the way he speaks and writes and, and, and talk uh, uh, influences people. Uh, he's, he's raising questions of human nature. Uh, and they're and therefore raising questions of, 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 of free will, uh, which is again the kind of you hear a lot of that talk and at the at the time of the revolution, right when that American mind Jefferson references uh, is there. So this so you know a lot of that thinking in 1776 is 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 a result of a reflection on what human nature is really like, right? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if a lot of that doesn't begin with Edwards, um, but also I wonder how far we can push this. Uh, shift that Sarah also brought up about from from a, a congregational way of thinking or a corporate, I believe you called it, to an individualistic way, more individualistic way of thinking about things. Uh, can we say, in a sense, that's a shift toward self-government with regard to religious things or thinking about religious things for oneself without having to rely on on uh, on orthodoxy? Uh, uh, what Sarah, can you help us maybe understand a little bit more what you meant by the by, by a corporate way of thinking? Yeah, so there's a there's a tension in Christianity from the time that Luther nails the 95 theses on the door, right? Um, and says, I have these problems with the Church of Rome, and then ultimately breaks with Rome, right? And the tension is how can we both say every individual believer can interpret scripture? And, and have a, um, a sense of its truth on their own that doesn't have to come through the hierarchy of a church and keep, you know, orthodoxy, right? How do we keep from just every man for himself, you know, no, no guidelines. Um, and in, in the American tradition, um, you know, the, the Puritan slash congregationalist tradition in New England uh, is very strong, um, very influential. And their, their way of dealing with it is to focus on the congregation as um, kind of a safe size, right? A, a group of people who are local to one another, um, who know each other um, and can dialogue about these things. So, you know, the Puritans through the 17th century um, are, are they're into self-government on that local level. Um, and, you know, they, they have all these wonderful church meetings and we, we have all the records of them because there are people who like to write things down where they say, well, what does this mean? And, and what do you think it means? Um, and so there's a, there is self-government happening, but it's really focused on that relationship with others in this community. Um, and people who step outside of the community and, and say, well, I really can't be comfortable with that consensus. Like the most famous example would be somebody like Anne Hutchinson um, or Roger Williams, you know, people who sit through those meetings, but at the end of the day say, no, that's just not where my conscience leads me. And so I have to take a stand over here. Those people are invited to leave, <laughs> uh, you know, graciously to exit the community and, and go forth and create new colonies. Um, and so the emphasis is still then on on the corporate, right? Like it's finding other people to validate your mindset and, and your opinion. And with the Great Awakening, what I think we see uh, happen is that you have less emphasis on the, the need to come to agreement with others and more willingness for there to be diversity within a congregation, um, you know, for there to be 
um, an agreement to disagree uh, and to figure out how to live with people who have differing uh, opinions about these essential questions. And then that does, I think, give you more impetus to say, I individually can choose these other in these other areas of life um, beyond the church. I don't know if that helps clarify at all. Yeah, no, I think it does. So just a, if you don't mind a quick follow up question, if it, again, for either of you, and then I want to get to some of the questions that have been or comments that have been uh, put into the chat uh, feature because some interesting thoughts there. Um, so just a, a follow up question. Um, did, did Edwards, did Edwards, so Edwards was, did he believe that some sort of hierarchy was still important to a certain extent then? Is he trying to strike a middle ground in a way, or is he really an extremist in the sense that he's moving toward, away from this corporate mode to a more individualistic mode? Do either of you know? Um, that's a great question. And I think, uh, Chris, that Edwards himself is more of a moderate. Um, and because he's trying to, he's actually trying to defend the Great Awakening from critics um, like uh, Chauncey, um, who is, you know is more of a rationalist, more of an old light traditionalist, and just and just say, look, this is not just uh, emotion absent any truth, right? It's but it's a truth that comes to the affections uh, directly from God. So I, I think he himself is more of a moderate but he's more sensitive and supportive to the idea of this more radical break with tradition. And then uh, people definitely use his writings to support more radical breaks uh, down the line. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, we, we can't forget that Edwards is actually kicked out of his church uh, for being too traditionalist, right? His church in Northampton. Too, too traditionalist, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, so he, when his, um, when his grandfather, Solomon's daughter, died, um, Edwards became the sole pastor in Northampton, and he was the pastor there for almost 30 years. But during that period, um, when there were these revivals and people are, are wanting to join the church, um, he had a lot of controversy with his congregation about what the standard for church membership should be. And he actually wanted it to be more rigorous, more, you know, old school, if you will, than th these uh, leaders in his church did. And they ultimately um, asked him to leave. And he you know, goes wow. on uh, to the, what was the mission front at the time, Western Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Wow. I didn't know that. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so if, if you, I, both of you don't mind, there are a couple of interesting or some interesting uh, comments and questions coming into the chat box. Dustin had written earlier, um, we tend to focus a lot on the enlightenment with developing an understanding of the American Revolution, but what, what was the greatest contribution of the first great awakening with the movement toward independence? And again, we've kind of hit that on a broad level. So if either of you'd like to follow up on that question and answer in a different way, uh, that'd be great. But I also want to, can I tweak that question a little bit? I'd also like to know your thoughts, both your thoughts on on whether you see enlight, an influence of enlightenment thought on Edwards. To what extent is Edwards uh, influenced by enlightenment thinking? Yeah, um, I know that uh, while at Yale, uh, Edwards, I mean, he studies John Locke extensively, mm -hmm. um, right? He um, he, he um, gets absorbed in, in Locke's essay concerning human understanding uh, in, the, uh, in the two treatises. 
um, right? He's familiar with Hobbes as well. In fact, I mean, you know, some some uh, say, well, well, some of uh, Edwards' critics will actually associate him with with Hobbes and say, right, really? Edwards' understanding of politics leads you to this sort of ultimate Leviathan. I don't think Edwards would agree with that assessment. But yeah, he's certainly a product of of the Enlightenment, um, of the uh, of the of the of the the Puritans who who come to uh, to the United States seeking religious freedom in the early 17th century. Although keep in mind, right at this time, politically, um, to say nothing about the period of Anne Hutchinson and the Massachusetts Body of Liberties or the Salem Witch Trials, but even into the you know early 18th, early to mid 18th century, there is very little religious freedom to speak of in the American colonies. Um, as late as what 1775. It's still uh, as um, Baptist ministers are still being uh, still required to get a government license in order to uh, in order to preach. Um, so with this emphasis on right uh, individual freedom and the capacity for self-government, um, that uh, comes along though in an atmosphere that is not entirely friendly to sort of complete uh, what what uh, Sarah called uh, right diversity. In terms of uh, of opinions of religion, um, that is true to a certain extent. You get to a point though where, well, if you don't believe in God, um, or even if you're, you know, in some places a Catholic, uh, you run into trouble um, with the political order. Um, the Enlightenment thinking does a lot to alleviate that, but it will ultimately be the principles of 1776 and the American Revolutionaries that right, will lead to a, a more um, complete understanding of, of freedom. Yeah. Yeah, because Locke, Locke, of course, explicitly says atheists ought not to be tolerated, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and maybe Catholics too. Maybe so, Catholics, yeah. Right. Papists. Uh, yeah. So, um, do you, and do you think? Do you know? Did Edwards then tend to align him, uh, agree uh, with with Locke's understanding, or in broad terms of how mm -hmm. we think about toleration? That was going to be my other question: is yeah. to what extent was uh, Edwards influential in bringing about, again, what Thomas Jefferson called separation of church mm -hmm. and state. Mm -hmm. um, so, and again, Jason, you mentioned earlier the the, the uh, Edwards uh, reflections on free will, and I, I also wondered the extent to which he would have agreed with Locke's mm -hmm. uh, essay concerning human understanding, uh, mm -hmm. which talks a lot about the, you know, uh, will and, mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. So, I'm just throwing those thoughts out there if anybody has any yeah, I mean, those are those are both really good questions. I'm not quite sure Sarah actually, right, is the real expert here um, on this era and on, and on Edwards uh, probably has more thoughtful things. Gosh, with the hard stuff. Thanks so much, Jason. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure, sir. Although yeah, here, I mean, I can I can I can give it a shot. I'm not quite sure, right, of the extent to which uh, Edwards is in conformity um, with Locke's opinions on on politics um, and uh, and religion. I do know um that if you want to understand like I, the point i made earlier about um edwards on, on freedom of the will uh i think what lincoln has to say about that in the second inaugural is a perfect representation of how edwards thinks of the freedom of the human will that is to say that human beings try to control events right this is the point of lincoln's second inaugural human beings try to control events um through their actions through their deliberations um and to a certain extent right those um actions of human beings um, are able to control events, but over top of everything else is the complete and total sovereignty of God, which 
which rules everything, um, including human action, which means human beings may try to control events through their actions, but ultimately um, can do absolutely nothing in the face of the divine will, in the face of the sovereignty of God. Human beings try to get rid of slavery by passing the 13th Amendment, by passing the Emancipation Proclamation, and still this war drags on, right? That's Lincoln's point for why it's, it's so strange that the cause of the war has ceased, and yet the war drags on. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. No, no, by the, just, I'm sorry, I mean to interrupt, Jason. No, but no, no, you're like, fine. So the way you're describing how Lincoln understood Edwards on this, or the way Lincoln speaks in very Edwards, Edwardsian, Edwards-like ways, uh, it doesn't, that doesn't sound very Lockean to me. Who, again, I don't want to oversimplify things, but Locke, Locke, I think, had a tendency to minimize the idea of divine sovereignty and the affairs of, of human beings and to place much more emphasis on the agency of human beings. Absolutely. To, and that's the so, next step, right, in that yeah. line where, yeah, maybe he does depart from Locke in that regard. Yeah, it's very interesting. Very yeah. interesting. This will be interesting next week, too, when we talk about Benjamin. Sorry to bring this up, but we're uh, uh, the next webinar is on Benjamin Franklin. I'm hoping we have a chance to kind of follow up on this uh, because Benjamin Franklin has a lot to say about this. It'd be interesting. But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Sorry. Sarah, what, I, what do you, you wanted to correct um, Jason and me on, on these things? So. No, no, no. I don't want to correct you. Um, actually, I think that what's interesting about Edwards that maybe does differentiate him from Locke is his willingness to live with paradox. Um, you know, whereas Locke is, is kind of super rational and trying to figure everything out and derive from, you know, these thought experiments and um, experience and everything. I, I think we see in Edwards a willingness to sort of hold both the agency of man and the sovereignty of God in you know the immediate revelation of God as he describes in the reading a divine and supernatural light and you know the humans um, need to seek after these things right so if I can just read uh, just an excerpt from the document real quick please yeah that'd be great um, this is in um, so in the divine and supernatural light, after he's kind of given us his outline, um, right up the paragraph right above point two, uh, where it starts with, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the lovely, loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has the idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Um, and so Great. I just, I love, yeah, I love those couple of sentences um, because I really think it puts into concrete forms that, you know, even my children could understand the difference between thinking that something is going to taste good and actually tasting it, hmm. right? Uh, and, and I think this is what Edwards really does that allows him to be um, maybe more Lincolnian and less Lockean hmm. is to say, you can imagine or rationalize something, but you can't really fully know it until you've tasted yeah. it, experienced yeah. it. That's a great point, Sarah, right? Great. Sort of the, the emphasis that we see in Edwards on what reason can accomplish, but at the same time, it's natural limitations, right? That can only then be completed through through the sovereignty of God or, or, or 
um, or faith, or faith as opposed to simply reason alone. Yeah, um, and that does sound sort of very, not very, but that does sound anti-Lockean to me. Yeah. Locke says, right, uh, right, reason, if left to itself, can, can come to truth, the whole of truth. Yeah. Um, for Edwards, you need God. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm going to come back to this later if we have time because mm -hmm. uh, uh, I don't want to interrupt this train of this interesting train of thought. We've got some other interesting comments in the chat box too, but it seems to me by 1776, there's so much more emphasis on reason in these things. Where am I going with this? I'm not, I, I'm, now I'm wondering if maybe Edwards moved us down a certain path away from this corporate element of this aspect that Sarah started us with, but if, but if, if there isn't a shift away from Edwards on this question of sense versus reason, uh, by the time the American Revolution begins, because we see so much more Lockean of a Lockean emphasis on reason in, in things by that time. I, I, but again, I'll, I'll come back to that. Maybe if I'm trying to formulate a question, I don't have a question quite formulated on this, but uh, but that's that's really uh, it's really very interesting. So, Sarah, since you pointed us toward the divine and supernatural light, uh, David. Uh, hey, David. Uh, glad you're here. Um, uh, asked, could someone comment on the compatibility of Cotton Mather's spirit of reason and Jonathan Edwards' divine and supernatural light? Uh, seems to me they are one and the same. So that's one thing maybe uh, you guys could address. Uh, and then Beth also asked if some of you would compare Edwards with Wesley. Can we do that? That's getting, that's pretty, wow, those are high pay grade questions. I'm um, hoping we can address those. <laughs> Deep thoughts out there. Um, so I would agree, actually, that there's a lot of compatibility between Cotton Mather's understanding of reason and Edwards's, um, which is one reason why when uh, David and Ellen Tucker and I were, were working on this collection, we thought it actually made a good pairing to put them together because Edwards, um, you know, he's always a, a focal point for these conversations about the role of religion and, and the revolution, uh, you know, the influence of the Great Awakening. But we often forget that he was part of a long tradition. Uh, and so I think he modernizes that tradition. I think he's very deeply influenced by Locke, um, especially uh, the essay concerning human understanding and sort of this, um, it's probably not fair to call Locke a psychologist, but um, I, I think Locke is more psychological than theological uh, in, in the way that somebody mm -hmm. like Mather is. Um, but Locke also still has this like one foot in the past, even as he's bridging us forward. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that they're very compatible. They're just using slightly different metaphors and, um, and ways of thinking about how to explain this paradox of human reason God's, you know, divine inspiration, um, needing to work together. Yeah. About Wesley, ooh, that's <laughs> that's not my area of expertise. I'm not <laughs> so good on yeah, the Methodist. I'm not sure about that that point either about yeah, comparing right. Edwards to to Wesley. I agree with Sarah about uh, what she said about Cotton Mather, um, but keeping in mind, right, that Edwards is just one of many of these these new lights that that come about as a result of the the great awakening um that um 
Edwards, his reputation since, I mean, has has grown, especially in the last 20 years or so, there's been this resurgence in, in Edwards scholarship, uh, an interest in, in Edwards, and, and he's been characterized as um, the American Augustine, America's evangelical. Um, that is, uh, of course, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that Edwards getting this, this renewed uh, attention, especially after um, right, a few decades after his death, um, he is largely forgotten in that time following um, um, his passing in what was 1758 um, and the lead up to the American Revolution. The American revolutionaries were not talking about Jonathan Edwards. Um, it's nice to see his reputation coming back. Um, but at the same time, right, he's, he's just one of many of those, those new lights that are responsible for what you see in the Great Awakening. Yeah. By the way, um, some of the things you've both been bringing up reminded me, uh, maybe it was what Sarah said, you know, uh, Locke was more psychological uh, than theological. And I would, I would agree with that, um, psych psychological in the sense that it, taken in the original sort of Greek understanding of, of, of psyche or suke, right, uh, getting into the mind and how it works. Uh, but, you know, and that, but it reminds me, Locke's Locke's major theological work was called the reasonableness of Christianity. <laughs> Just as both of you are saying, it seems Locke is trying to resolve any tensions ultimately in favor of what reason can can do, right? So there are these seeming contradictions or unresolvable uh, paradoxes in, in, in Christianity. And um, uh, again, I don't want to oversimplify uh, in a summary of Locke's reasonableness of Christianity, but it's, it's, I don't think it's totally unfair to say, generally speaking, Locke comes down to the point that if reason can't answer it, then it's, um, it's not a valid, there's no validity to that particular religious doctrine uh, or contradiction as he would call it. So again, that's a huge oversimplification, but, but part of the reason I mentioned that is because by the time we, again, get to the revolution, I'm kind of building toward that eventually. Um, in a lot of the sermons that you see in uh, being given at, uh, between 1774 and 1780, uh, it's interesting you you see a lot of that Lockean um, emphasis on reason being used as a way to help us understand what religious ideas are are true and valid and which are sort of superfluous and silly in a way, right? Mm -hmm. So is Edwards doing something similar to that when he talks about this balance between uh, reasonable, you know, reason uh, and, and faith? Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, to what extent is reason really useful and important for, for Edwards? Hmm. And, and part of the reason I'm asking that is because Nick, Nick asked, what side would Jonathan Edwards land on, reason or faith? Could you, and then he says, could you name someone who would be on the other? So, Yeah, really, a couple of really great questions. Um, I'll take a, the first stab at this and, and try to be really brief here to let, you know, be interested to hear what Sarah has to say about this. Um, for, uh, you, you mentioned those, those sermons during the, uh, the American Revolutionary period. Um, and the main point I see when reading those sermons is, well, one of the main points is that, um, reason and revelation can both tell us something about the nature of, of truth, can tell us something about the laws of nature and nature's God. That's reason and revelation um, basically end at the same point. 
Um, and therefore, right, reason can can tell you about the, the laws of God and nature. Um, so can revelation. I don't see Edwards disputing that. I don't see Edwards disputing that. So for instance, um, Edwards uh, throughout his life was a student of the natural sciences as well as theology. Um, right, he, he keeps all these detailed books and journals on his study of, of the natural world, um, what he saw as right divine order in in his creation, in in God's creation. So he right he keeps all these pages on spiders, for instance, and that finds its way into that wonderful imagery and the the sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon, right? Where right we human beings were just little spiders being dangled over the the pits of hell and. God can can choose at his pleasure to to drop us at any moment. And I don't know, maybe we could talk about that sermon a little later on if there's sure. time. Um, but I don't see Edwards as, you know, anti-reason at all. Um, and not that's not to say that the, the question was pointing us down that road. Um, but for Edwards, the reason the capacity for human reason can teach us a lot about the human world, about the divine order of that world. Um, but ultimately, for personal salvation, for bringing um, right, over, right, overcoming our original sin and and and, uh, and achieving uh, eternity with the divine, that is not something that one can simply come to by by reason. That's where you need the. That faith. makes sense. So yeah, that makes sense, Jason. So I, that so that helps me clarify, um, I guess, what I was asking a little bit. Mm -hmm. In a, I was thinking of it in a political sense because the example I always think of is at, uh, in, in the in 1776 and the years leading up to it, um, there was a doctrine that was held to be um, uh, indisputable, a, a, a Christian doctrine, which was if there are passages in scripture that say you must simply submit to authority, right? And uh, you know, the king's the king, and any any act contrary to the will of the king is an act of rebellion, not just against the king, but against God, right? Mm -hmm. So they're often citing, there were often people citing passages from scripture uh, saying, you know, submit to the authorities that be, and so on and so forth. And, and what, I, what I found in the sermons of the revolution era is there are preachers saying, um, uh, look you have to interpret that part of scripture and that that particular doctrine in light of reason and reason tells you that can't be the right interpretation reason tells you that the the nature of the world is such and the world has a certain nature because of god's rational design or rational plan for the world if you will and in light of that understanding we must interpret or think in uh, think of religious ideas from the perspective of of, of reason but, but but that seems but that's on a political level and not on yeah, an that's not to say level, that reason right? gets you into heaven right right, right? Mm -hmm. but but reason but 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 religion and scripture in particular interpreted through reason can have a deep influence on political things right mm -hmm. questions of sovereignty of uh of obligation to, to the sovereign and and even you know what your government should look like in general what laws are good and so on and so forth right so I guess that was why I asked that question, and I'm not sure that Edwards gets that deeply political about things. It doesn't seem as though he does. So on the but in a personal sense, I guess this helps me understand this better. I can see where that 
where reason and faith become really important in a personal sense for Edwards uh, in terms of, you know, one's own salvation. So, sorry, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm, I get selfish and I'm, I, you guys say things that make me think things I haven't thought before and I get, I get carried away and I apologize. So, Sarah, I didn't know if you had any, did you want to jump in on this too? Yeah, I would definitely jump in. I mean, I would say Edwards is very much in the reformed tradition of Christianity um, in that I don't think that he sees any contradiction between what we can discern truly by reason and what God reveals, you know, in a supernatural way, right? And if there is a contradiction, it's apparent only, and it's a flaw in our own you know, thought process, right? But I think- Oh, that's interesting. Those two things, you know, God's truth is the same, whether it's revealed through natural means, right? Like reason or supernatural means. And where we see a contradiction, that's just our limitation um, as human beings. And um, and I, I think that actually plays out in the sermons that you're referencing in the revolution uh, era as well, when they start to say, okay, we're gonna take uh, these passages and, and talk about them differently because that was the same way that uh, the Massachusetts ministers in the 1680s were telling the Massachusetts legislature, no, you can resist Charles II's attempts to recall our charter because if we give him the charter, that's akin to political suicide. And reason tells us that because God gives us life, he doesn't ever want us to commit suicide. And if that's true for our bodies, it must be true for our political communities as well. That's a great point. Yeah, that's very that's very helpful. That's very clear. Um, that's great. Uh, so I'm just looking at a few more questions that have come in the chat box here. Um, uh, oh, from Meg, would either Jason or Sarah like to offer any corrections or edits to stereotypes of Edwards that they see perpetuated? So he's often seen as or remembered as X, but it's better to think of him as Y or something yeah. like that. How do we so this sort of echoes back to how we think of Edwards? Um, yeah, um, the one that, uh, that always gets to me is this image of Edwards, um, as this, this firebrand preacher, right up at, right up at the pulpit and, uh, and constantly condemning and yelling and shouting and right through the, right through the, uh, exuberances of the spirit, something that is, you know, characteristic of the great awakening through that type, that style of preaching, right? Edwards, right, saves hundreds of souls. He was a very quiet man, right? Both at home and in front of the pulpit, right? He was very reasonable. That emphasis on reason that we've been talking about here, um, that's demonstrated in his sermons, right? Going from point to point in a clear and precise fashion, right? It, you, you'd have to strain to hear this guy speak. Um, he, was very careful in his selection of his words. He did not sort of just go into it and um, right and let the the spirit move him as 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 it will. Um, he was he in his preaching style. He was much more quiet than the the firebrand that he has come across today. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because uh, people remember you know sinners in the hand of hands of an angry God, right? And the title is. Seems to imply or imply a you know, you think I tend to think of a preacher who's you know, fiery and talking about God's you know an angry God and you're all right serious. right you and you can imagine reading some of those those famous lines from that sermon with that firebrand style right right 
that's not what what Edwards was. I mean, I'll just you know if, to go to the document here just for a second. Some of these lines, right? You you can't help if you read it out loud to right go down that route of of shouting. Um, whereas, but that's not Edwards again. So you know some of these these great lines from the speech. Uh, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Yeah, you could just tell just by, by reading Sorry. this that I would write, I would, if, I, I I read it and I get into it and say, oh wow, okay, this is this is heavy stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Edwards is but, but that's not again, that's not Edwards. Yeah. yeah, Jason, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I even read somewhere that um in the you know, like a, an eyewitness account of when he actually delivered the sermon for the first time, that he was weeping um or or close to tears, you know, not you know, the the total opposite of shouting, right? The, yeah, exactly. I, I, I've heard I've heard this I've heard the same thing Sarah yeah absolutely um and right it just it's just you know when you read the sermon you can't help but sort of you know think that you have to yell this thing I don't know but that's again that's not Edwards instead he's weeping he's crying over this idea that right it's the mere pleasure of God that is saving you from dropping down into heaven yeah uh, I think it's more down into hell yeah go ahead no, I was saying, yeah, I, th I think we think of him as like Jerry Falwell. Yeah. Um, and I think it would be more accurate to think of him as somebody like Martin Luther King, right? Yeah, like when King great. speaks about justice, um, you know, he's not yelling either, you know, but he's very serious and, and he's speaking truth, but it's, it's with, um, it's really with a sense of, of that brotherhood of man. And I need to tell you, you know, white America, how wrong you are not just for my benefit but for your benefit yeah right? I, I think there's that's a great, great comparison Sarah yeah I hadn't thought of that that I think that's exactly right yeah I, Sarah, I'm, I'm sorry yeah. Sarah I'm glad you said that because somebody just asked if you could suggest a modern comparison uh which modern political or which modern leaders might Edwards be compared to so just answer that question I think very nicely unless you'd like to take that further sorry Jason go right ahead please no, no, no. I mean, that, that was that was wonderful. I think, yeah. yeah, I think that's a good comparison. Uh, I think that answers the question you just brought up, Chris. And, you know, some of these just again, you know, going back to the sinners in the hands of an angry God uh, sermon, which I know gets a bad rap at times. Um, but, you know, I can't help but love this thing. Um, right. This is sort of the original scared straight. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. tactic here. Um, yeah. But there are other parts that conform with what uh, with Sarah mentioned, right? Sort of, you know, Edwards weeping during his, his deliverance of this sermon because of his understanding of the human divine relationship and what that means for the human soul and its future, right? So yeah. just shortly after he talks about, right, the arrow being made drunk with your blood, um, right? He says this in the, in the sermon, uh, Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Hmm. There is no other reason to be given why you hadn't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God 
provoking his pure eyes in your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty strong, pretty powerful. <laughs> Scared straight. <laughs> Scared straight. Yeah. But obviously very appealing to a lot of people, which I always find interesting as well. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, he's telling people point blank, you're sinners. And it seems to me part of human nature is that we don't like to be told that we're wrong, at least according yeah. to James Madison, right? Yeah. Then, but, uh, but here there's a great appeal in Edwards and what Edwards is saying. And uh, again, perhaps it's because people understood that his motive was love of humanity and, and not, not simply anger on his part. But uh, so, uh, Sarah, I didn't know if you wanted to answer that earlier question about the stereotypes and correcting those things, but I, um... yeah, I will jump in on there. Um, I agree with everything that Jason has said um, in terms of that presentation of him as angry. Um, and I would offer also to, I think it goes along with this. We often think of 18th century religious figures as um, like quasi misogynistic or at best sort of indifferent to women, if not, you know, actively oppressing them. And Edwards, uh, you know, he had the utmost respect for his wife, Sarah. They had a very close and loving relationship uh, where he talked with her about serious theological things. Their letters back and forth um, are quite deep um, during his absences. Um, and also his daughters were raised and given a, a, a really high level of education for the time. And um, his daughter, Esther Edwards, marries um, Aaron Burr Sr., right? So the father of Aaron Burr, the guy famously shoots Hamilton, right? Um, but so she, uh, Esther Edwards Burr marries Aaron Burr Sr., and then she moves to New Jersey where he is the founding president of the College of New Jersey, which becomes Princeton. I had no idea. Yeah, and uh, and she has this wonderful, um, it's kind of like a diary slash letter book uh, that she keeps. And you can read what she was thinking uh, being at the center of the Great Awakening in New Jersey, um, tail end of the Great Awakening, it's the 1750s, right? But you, you get a sense of what um, he must have been like to live with because of who she grew up to be uh, and the way that she talks about her experience in the evangelical world as a woman um, is very thoughtful. And um, you know, she, talk, she does the things that he talks about in um, A Divine and Supernatural Light about you know, examining her soul. Right, so you can actually see in her diary some of the things that he recommends being put into practice. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if that's really a corrective per se, but um, I would just say that he was actually very supportive of women's intellectual development and you know, thought of them as fully capable of dealing with these weighty matters um, as any man would have been. Sure, no, I think that's something that's not widely known. So I think that was, um, and when you put it that way, by the way, now I think I can, I think see how the the move, the influence of Edwards toward you know thinking more individualistically about religious things, it it, it had to have opened doors for women to be thought of as more equal yes. in the in that just that ability to think for themselves about religious things that that probably over time turned into greater and greater political uh, equality or opportunity as well. So I think that's a great point. Are those, so, so that diary is that of, of his daughter, is that available? 
Yeah. Accessible can, somehow, Sarah? Yep, Yale, um, Yale University Press has published it. Yale University Press. And what about the letters between Jonathan and his wife, Sarah? Are those available, do you know? Have you um, seen some, them? Some of them are, and I think they all will be eventually as part of Yale's complete works of Jonathan Edwards. Um, and I should also mention, we actually have uh, an excerpted version of Esther Edwards Burr's uh, journal on the Teaching American History, History website. So if you search for her, you can get kind of my favorites um, from that. That's great. Great. Thank you. Sorry, Jason, did I cut you off? No, no, I just had a, I just had a question. Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't Edwards also, uh, didn't he also have like 10 sisters? Is that right? Am That's I right. This correctly, right? He's one of 11 children. He's the only boy. Is that right? Hmm. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Um, that's great stuff. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. I'm going to throw one of my own questions out because I actually just want to know this. And then I want to come back to some other good questions that have come in in the chat box. Why do we remember uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God? I mean, Jason, you love the, you talked about the certain aspects of it that you, that you love and are interesting, but why, why is that a work that has continued to be read today, even today, right? Even over the course of two centuries, why is that the thing that by Edwards that we remember and why I just why why do why do people find that so appealing? Um, what yeah, is it about that work? Um, I mean, the, have such enduring, you know, influence. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I th I think well. I mean, right. The speech itself is sort of extraordinary in its presentation of right this angry God, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God, um, and I think that especially since Edwards's time. Um, many historians, many political scientists have, have come to think of the Great Awakening as um, in terms that Edwards presents in that sermon, that that sermon has come to epitomize, okay, this is what was going on in the Great Awakening, and here's why it was so successful in converting all of these thousands of people to Christianity. Uh, to a certain extent, I, I would agree with that, um, right? It's, it's often used in, in schools, um, right? In right, high schools and colleges when it comes to the teaching of, um, of that, this time period uh, and this subject. Uh, I, I remember when I first started you know, teaching um, American history, I would, I would use this, this, that sermon uh, in order to right, try to help the students understand what was going on in the Great Awakening. But at the same time, that's, it's incomplete. Um, because um, as as Sarah and and uh, and you Chris have you know, have explained here that it, it wasn't just right all right firebrand and hellfire and um, that uh, that Edwards and others of this time period preached on um, sinners in the hands of an angry God I think ought to be read side by side with a divine and supernatural light sermon um, that that was the uh, that was the reading that we had for uh, for today and that Sarah has been quoting from. Uh, you need you need both of those. They're they're two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, right, the angry, wrathful God versus the sinner. On the other hand, um, the um, the emphasis on um, what faith can do in reconciling that relationship, if that makes sense. So Jason just gave us the very um, highbrow response. I'm hoping you guys can hear me. I can I can hear you. Okay. Oh, good. Good. Chris, good. Are you still there? 
I will, did we lose Chris? Did we lose Chris? I don't know. I guess I'll just keep talking about yeah, my just keep, Yeah, just keep going, Sarah. This is interesting. Um, so I think you gave the, the very high level response to that question, Jason, about why it, it's appealing to us as scholars and thinking about the American tradition. I have a kind of more um, like lowbrow answer to this as well. And I think for me, the reason that Sinners is so appealing um, and we see it begin to be republished in the 19th century with um, the rise of evangelicals like uh, Dwight L. Moody, right? Um, so I think that type of language, that type of rhetoric appealed to him um, because it was the kind of rhetoric he wanted to use. And he doesn't use other writings like maybe David Brainerd's uh, The Danger of Un an Unconverted Ministry, right, where the, a lot of the emphasis in The Great Awakening is actually not on the people being spiritually dead, but on their leaders being spiritually dead, right? Um, and it's the leaders who, you know, then, you know, the ministers in the 19th century and, um, and onwards who save Edward's sinners and keep pointing to it. Um, and so I, I think there is a little bit of a like, oh, let's not criticize ministers, let's criticize you know, the congregants um, that makes it, it popular um, throughout the 19th century. Um, and then it is just a beautiful piece of writing. It's dramatic. You know, there's so much imagery there. I mean, you talked about the arrow, uh, uh, but I also like the like being dangled like a spider, right? Yes, and, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's terrific imagery, right? It's just right. You're you you human beings. You're just these little insignificant spiders being dangled by this almighty, all powerful God over the pits of hell, and it's just the mere pleasure of God that saves you yeah. from any moment from being dropped down and consumed. Definitely. That's great. Sorry, I I got kicked from WebEx for some reason. But you can hear me okay now. We can. Good. We're glad you're back. So I'm sorry I missed the first half of your response, Sarah. I only caught the last part, but I'm sure it's great. So um, uh, I lost all the questions that were showing up in my chat box because I got kicked. But I remember I recall two of them were, were sort of similar. Um, both of them were asking about uh, about to what extent people we think of as founding fathers or founders were influenced by Edwards during the revolution. But one of them asked in particular uh, about their thought with their thinking with regard to uh, women and the equality of women. And Sarah, you touched on that earlier. Um, so both of them were asking about the sort of the, the later influence of Edwards, both at the time of the revolution, but also with regard to others after after the revolution, where do we see do you see instances of the lingering influence of, of Edwards, both during the revolutionary uh, period and, and beyond? Any takers on that question? Did you lose me again? No, no I hear you. I just, I wasn't sure if Jason was gonna jump in, so. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was thinking, I mean, um, Sarah, yeah, why don't that's you a tough question. That's a right. tough question. Yeah, it's, it's very tough. I'm still trying to formulate my thoughts on that. Yeah, Sarah, if you if you don't Good. mind, take a step. Yeah, sure. I'll take a first step. Um, so I would say there are a couple of different ways you could approach this question. One is um, if you think about the Great Awakening as a relatively short and discrete historical event, say it starts in the 1730s and ends by 1754, um, then you can say by the time of the revolution, um, late 1770s, 
there's there's kind of a resurgence of interest in that type of uh, evangelical uh, uh, sense or emotion heavy version of Christianity. Um, and so you could say, okay, that's that's a, a, a revival or a resonance of Edwards. There are some scholars who say the Great Awakening is the first Great Awakening is actually a much longer historical event. Um, so that it they say it starts in the 1730s, but that it actually continues through the 1780s, right? Mm -hmm. And so they see um, what's happening in the revolution almost as the tail tail end of that way of thinking. Um, and you have uh, a lot of women, uh, even more in the 1750s to 1770s than in the early part of the Great Awakening or the traditionally, you know, period or period characterized as the Great Awakening. Um, you see more women who are really, they've benefited from this way of thinking about uh, individual, you know, grappling with scripture. They've had uh, more education um, and they're being encouraged to do the kind of self-reflection um, than in that earlier period. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I would say that there is a, an influence on women, whether you see it as continuous over that time period or yeah generational um but that we definitely see the benefits of it um in the way women's education improves in the 1770s and then that goes on to become part of the legacy of the revolution right like the whole republican motherhood you know women are the first teachers of citizens uh, and so they themselves need to be you know thinking about important self-government uh type things yeah yeah i mean we're aware of the the limitations um that's the right term politically uh, for women in the political realm, right? I mean, I think there are some advances that are made uh, up to and through the revolutionary period for women politically, but we know there are some strong limitations there. But I'm just in the private, in the sorry, a private sense, I wonder if, again, Sarah, the way you're describing this, um, how do I put this? I'm trying to think of the right, you can correct me if I'm not putting this the right way. I'm, think, I'm thinking of Tocqueville, uh, who later writes in the 1830s, Americans, uh, even though women are very limited in the political sphere, uh, Americans tend to have a very high esteem for women. Men have a higher esteem for women in America than they do in Europe, and certainly in France, as Tocqueville says. Um, I wonder if in that, in that sort of private sense, that, that esteem that women have isn't influenced or enhanced because of their, their ability to participate more fully and freely in religious things. So, Sarah, this is a more specific question. Um, do, you, do, do women play a more uh, influential role in, in religious things in general uh, during the Great Awakening? Uh, can you think of some examples, perhaps? Um, so George Whitfield, uh, you know, his journal where he, he recounts all of his journeys, he frequently talks about going to meet with women's prayer meetings. Um, so we have that sort of Tocquevillian association, associational um, impulse, right? So women are getting together, they're organizing these meetings, um, you know, they're, they're gender specific, but they're still, you know, they're the ones who set the, the rules for the meeting, they're the ones who run the meeting, um, they get leadership experience in those ways. Um, and then those meetings are actually encouraged by the male leaders of the, con you know, the male ordained leadership of the congregation. Um, and those meetings then become important um, in practical, not just religious 
ways, right? Because they become the locus for a lot of charitable work um, and reform efforts as we see the 18th century go on and then into the, the 19th century, you know, the Ladies' Aid Association, right? It starts often, uh, if you look through the, the notes as a prayer meeting or a woman's Bible study, and then it becomes, oh, well, our faith tells us that we're supposed to do things to help the poor, or our faith tells us that, you know, um, husbands shouldn't be going out and getting drunk all the time. And so we're going to become temperance advocates or, you know, whatever the issue might be. Um, so I absolutely think that there's a connection between this way of thinking about religion is personal and approachable for women and women's greater opportunities. Yeah, and that's very different than what the example of Anne Hutchinson that Sarah brought up earlier, right, from 100 years before in the 1640s as opposed to the 1740s. Um, and Chris, your reference to Tocqueville just reminds me of something else that Tocqueville says in that, that great book of his about how the Puritans may in fact be the real founders of the American regime. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I don't think I do. Uh, but certainly, right, in the course of this conversation, right, we've seen how, right, they're not night and day, right? They, you know, actually, right, you, that uh, the founders and, and Edwards um, have a lot in common in how they understand human nature and how they understand the purpose of government. Um, and again, I don't see many revolutionaries citing Jonathan Edwards or his writings which are not widely available. Keep that in mind, too. I mean, his treatise on original sin is only just published after his death, but many of his works uh, that have come down to us, I mean, were, were completely unpublished. Um, he was not widely read during the American founding period, um, which is why you don't see guys like Jemmy Madison or, or Jefferson or, or Washington or others citing Edwards, although that's not to say that they're, um, that the American founding principles are contrary to Edward's ideas that we see in those in those um, in those yeah. sermons and writings. I think there's 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 a lot to be said there for conformity in principle. Well, uh, and don't forget Princeton. I, I'm sorry. Um, well, go ahead, sir. Please. But Princeton is a hotbed for the Great Awakening. Actually, you know, uh, uh, Jonathan yeah. Edwards' daughter and son-in-law are there, and then Edwards will actually briefly serve as the president before he dies uh, of smallpox in the 1750s. And you have you know Madison and all, you know, all these guys who are being yeah. educated there. So his his influence and the influence of others like him, um, I think, in the educational system that produces the founders cannot be underemphasized. And John, and that point, on that point. Point just happened to remember, right? John Witherspoon, I mean, takes over as as president of, of Princeton, um, and he will be one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. That's a great point. That's a great con I hadn't thought of that, actually. So there is a connection. It's in, it may be indirect, but it's it's there. And Witherspoon loved women. Uh, he actually goes over to Scotland and recruits uh, a, an important female reformer and brings her back to uh, the Mid-Atlantic to help to do women's reform mm -hmm. and ministry here. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I'd forgotten what a hotbed Princeton was, as you described it, Sarah, I think, right? I mean, it really was the the sort of intellectual, in many ways, an intellectual uh, uh, base of opposition, right? And I know it primarily through, through studying Madison, but, you know, Madison was, as we know, you know, a very hot-blooded uh, revolutionary and hated monarchy. And probably had a lot to do with his studies with Witherspoon, especially theological studies, so... Uh, that's a great connection. Um, 
So I've got two really interesting points here, and I'm hesitating on which one to throw out. So maybe I'll just shirk my responsibilities as a moderator and throw them both out for you to, to pick from. I don't know. You may be able to see them. Uh, one of them, I think, actually, we'll start with, uh, maybe we'll just start with Nora's because it, it was along the lines of something Jason was just talking about, I think. So Nora writes, in terms of the growth of democracy, is it fair to say that as Edwards preaches, we are all sinners before God, equal then in God's eyes, then we are equal to each other, and the king is no better than we are. I think that's an interesting thought, uh, is the way that she's putting together, sort of piecing together the logic of of, uh, of Edward's argument here. Could, do we, could, because I don't think Edward's ever makes that argument with regard to monarchy that I'm aware of, right? That the yeah. king is, is our equal, but it seems to follow in a logical way, doesn't it? Look, that's a great point. That's a great point. I haven't put much thought into that, but right, once you begin questioning the orthodoxy of the divine human relationship, uh, it's not that far, you're not that far away from questioning the the king subject relationship as a result, if that makes sense. Yeah, so the, the king can be a sinner too, right? Mm -hmm. If he's a human being and you follow Absolutely. the logic of Edward's yeah. argument. Mm -hmm. It seems to me it's just one or two steps, maybe five down the road, but mm -hmm. that's very interesting. Um, so the other the other question had to do with, uh, and Sarah, feel free to jump on jump in on any of these, but the other question was from, uh, Oh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, Edwards was influenced by his missionary approach to natives. Uh, does anyone know if his approach to female equality of educational opportunity uh, in society was influenced by his time with American Indian culture? Do, do, do either of you happen to know this? That's a very not, specific question. Um, because doesn't, the, doesn't his missionary activity come later in life after he leaves Northampton? I don't know. I thought so. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So maybe maybe then it evolved. The end of, of the question is whether his his thought on on these things evolved over time, and maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know the extent of Edwards's relationship with the Indian tribes, but it would sort of depend, you know, what Indian tribe you're talking about. Some have more friendly uh, views of of the role of of women within the tribe. Others treat them like pack mules. Hmm. It sort of. It, I I'm not. I don't know enough to say, well, what, well, Edwards was right, was a missionary to these tribes, and this is how those tribes thought about women. Some, some thoughts along more, um, uh, along the lines of equality among the sexes, more along those lines, while other tribes, not so much. I mean, Jefferson talks about this in his notes on the state of Virginia, right. for instance, but I don't know what Edwards has to say on the matter. Okay. I just thought I'd throw it out there and see if either of you knew. And now, I'm, I'm, we only have a few minutes left, so I'm, Sorry for throwing so many questions at you here, but there's uh, two good, I think two good questions worth, uh, or two questions worth uh, considering here in our last few minutes. So uh, Stefania writes, it seems that Locke wrote for government, uh, governmental and social roles of coexisting with each other's. Um, he's not as concerned with where we actually get the truth from, revelation or reason. Edward's purpose and role was a spiritual contribution to believers within the Christian church. He was primarily concerned with coming to the truth of God where reason by itself is not enough. So thoughts on that? She's, I think, asking for your thoughts on whether that sounds right. That, that. I, I, I think that sounds right. I mean, I think this would be, you could think of it as a lot of scholars of religion um, or even people like Dawkins, right? Um, you know, people who are, are, are really 
opposed to religion and think that it's false, but they have to know about it. You know, they have to understand the all the orthodoxies and doctrines, um, you know, to be able to counter it. So I think it's true to say that um, for Edwards, you could be a Richard Dawkins, right? You could know all about religion, but you would never really know it because God had not revealed to you that supernatural light that would allow it to, to convince your heart that it was true. Okay, I see. Okay, that's very well put. That's a really good one minute maybe 30 second answer to a really tough question. Thanks. So uh, maybe the last question I'll throw out for both of you. Um, uh, and it's, somebody wrote this earlier and I kind of held off on it until the end here. Is it fair to say that Edwards is the first uniquely American theologian? <laughs> maybe that's too hard to end with, I don't know. It's not fair. Um, and it's because I love the Puritans and have spent a lot of time reading, uh, you know, the 17th century thinkers. Um, so I think somebody like Thomas Shepard would actually be a better candidate for that. Um, Thomas Shepard, the first, there are actually three of them. Um, but the first one who comes over uh, in 1635 um, and becomes the, the pastor to the church that's right next to Harvard University um, and one of the leading thinkers in the 17th century. Um, and he actually writes a lot about what it means to be creating a new society um, mm -hmm. and trying to align that new society with a uh, a reformed understanding of scripture. Um, and because that's something that could not be done in Europe, right? Because reformed theology immersed, uh, emerged in the middle of existing societies. Mm. Uh, so I would argue that because Shepard is trying to apply theology to new political situations um, here in Massachusetts, that he's the first American theologian. That, that's, and I, I know nothing about this person. Shepard, who is it? Shepard, Thomas Shepard. I know nothing about Thomas Shepard. Have well, you, then I'll have to write the book. I was going to just suggest that. So <laughs> you should write something on that. So, I mean, I'll say this. I mean, Edward certainly has that reputation of being, right, America's evangelical. Uh, mm -hmm. For instance, I mean, one of the, the best biographies out there on, on Jonathan Edwards is subtitled America's Evangelical. This is by uh, Philip Gura. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, and, you know, he also, he has that reputation, as I mentioned earlier, as the American Augustine. Um, whatever that means, I'm not quite sure. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, that that is certainly his reputation today. Um, Sarah, it sounds like you you questioned that reputation. I would, too, um, although I, I'm, I'm not quite as big of a fan of, of the Puritans. Um, Edwards is, is more appealing to me. Um, but uh, I think that... Um, Edwards would want us uh, would want us questioning that otherwise. I mean, he was right. He was the the great one to always want to question everything. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I apologize for mispronouncing Kristen Merbach's name earlier. So I'm going to do something totally unfair. We have one minute, and you're both going to get mad at me for doing this, but I, I can live with it. Uh, so Kristen wants to know: Would Edwards have supported prayer in public schools? <laughs> That's nothing like ending on something very controversial. And if you don't know, just say, you know, that's, that's an answer. So. Oh, see, I think that would depend on, um, I think Edwards would have supported the type of prayer in public schools where everyone gets to pray, like in a moment of silence, you know, like, like there's a dedicated moment of silence and everyone can pray individually. I don't know that he would have supported like teacher led prayer. Interesting. Okay. It seems consistent with everything you've both said about Edward so far. So 
Yeah, that sounds right to me. All right. <laughs> Good answer. On that note. Good answer. All right. Hey, uh, thanks both of you very much. This has been very enlightening, very helpful. I've learned a great, great deal. And I hope our, our uh, people who have joined us have, have, have learned a great deal as well. So thank you both very much. Appreciate your time and thoughts. Um, yeah, so, thanks, uh, Chris. Actually, I just I just want to make one one more point. Oh, if anybody's interested in learning more about Jonathan Edwards, I, I forgot to mention this earlier, but Alan C. Guelzo, uh, oh. right, the famous Civil War historian, uh, has an awful lot published on uh, oh. on, on Jonathan Edwards. Um, Fantastic, especially from back in the '90s. Yeah, so maybe uh, take a look at that. Great, Sarah. Do you have any readings to recommend uh, off the top of your head if people want to read further on this? Um, I wouldn't recommend anything in particular, but I would say if you search for the Jonathan Edwards project at Yale, they have a bunch of short approachable essays um, that are designed to help people uh, get to know Edwards better. And some of them are actually aimed at classroom teachers and ways to use Edwards in your own class. Um, so you might, they might be helpful to people who right. come. And thanks to everybody for your questions. They were really thought provoking. Yes, absolutely. Great questions. Uh... So thanks again, thanks thanks everybody. Um, also, just a quick reminder uh, about the email you'll receive with the link for your certificate of participation. If you've enjoyed our webinar today and our conversations, uh, please take a look at our other resources that Ashbrook provides, uh, including our one day seminars, which we hold in various states on various topics. Uh, our volumes uh, of document collections continue to grow. Um, Sarah has been doing a lot of work on those, I know. and. Uh, so you can find information on these things at our tah.org website, uh, as well as information about our graduate courses in these things. So um, take a look if you get a chance and see if there are things that can be useful to you. Uh, our next Saturday webinar will be on Benjamin Franklin, as I mentioned earlier, and that will be on September 17th, uh, sorry, September 7th. And that will be with Todd Estes of Oakland University and David Tucker of the Ashbrook Center. So. Hopefully you'll be able to join us for that one as well. Until then, take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.